We're in the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to open your Bibles there this morning or navigate on your tablet or your phone. Mark chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. You can also follow along. The transcript is always, uh, most always, at transcript.calvaryhanford.com, and uh, you can follow along the transcript there. The topic in this text, troubled by his feasting with sinners, two groups approach Jesus to ask why he does not observe the twice-weekly ritual of fasting. The title of our message, The Fast and the Curious. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. Now we want to settle in to have ears that hear what the Spirit says to the church. Take your word, which is alive and powerful, the power of God unto salvation and use it in the way that you intend it to reach our hearts with the love of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. I have a suggestion for an annual event that would absolutely put Lamore on the map. It would be called La Tamatina on Lamore. It would be modeled after La Tamatina on Buenal, held annually in the eastern part of Spain since 1945. It is a food fight using only tomatoes. The fight lasts for an hour, after which the whole town square is covered with tomato paste. Fire trucks are needed to hose down the streets, and participants use hoses that the locals provide to remove the tomato paste from their bodies and clothes. It's one of a growing number of annual tomato food fights around the world. I bet you didn't know this. Since 1982, the town of Twin Lakes, Colorado has held a tomato fight called the Colorado-Texas Tomato War, in which Texans and Coloradans square off against each other with tomatoes. Since 2004, the Colombian town of Suta Macharn holds a similar event on June 15th when a surplus of tomatoes is harvested. In Costa Rica, the town of San Jose de Trojas celebrates a tomatine during the local tomato fair. In the town of Dongguan in southern Guangdong province in China, a tomato fight is held on October 10th during which they use up to 15 tons of tomatoes. Closer to home, La Tamatina on Reno, as it's called, matches 5,000 participants with 100,000 pounds of tomatoes. The event takes place the last weekend of August, and only overripe, inedible Roma tomatoes are tossed, which is better than simply throwing them in the trash. La Tamatina organizer Club Calneva charges a $10 participant fee, and if you'd like to chuck produce at the mayors of Reno or Sparks, Nevada, you can fork over another $50. All the prof, uh, proceeds from the event go to the American Cancer Society. With the Delmani plant and the Olam plants in Lemoore, what are we waiting for? It's a natural. We would be part of an international circuit of tomato fighting. And our theme song would be one-ton tomato, right? I ate a one-ton tomato. I've got this. I'm going to the city council. Who's with me? All right, yeah. I could get into a tomato fight. I mean, this is, this is an annual worldwide phenomenon, and we have as many wasted tomatoes as anybody, I'm guessing. So 
Now, a food fight of a different kind dominates our text. People are upset that Jesus feasts and that his disciples don't seem to fast. Their accusations and questions provide a teachable moment as Jesus explains some things about both feasting and fasting. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus explains why feasting is something you should exemplify. And number two, Jesus explains why fasting is something you should enjoy. Let's take a look, first of all, at verses 13 through 17, where feasting is something you and I should exemplify. One of the local income tax services is advertising for help using yard signs that read, help wanted, no experience necessary, will train. Have you seen those signs right around Grangeville and 12th? How excited are you really about having your taxes done by somebody who saw a yard sign who has no experience and will receive only about two months training before the coming tax season? Can you say TurboTax? Because that's all they're going to learn how to do is to download TurboTax on a computer. The Roman government, as I understand it, taxed regions like Israel by offering a contract to the highest bidder. The contract called for Rome to receive a definite certain amount of revenue. The person who won the bid made his profit by collecting more than the contract called for. These contracts were mostly awarded to wealthy Romans who then employed Jews to do the actual local collection of the taxes. Since these tax collectors came into regular contact with Gentiles, and since they were involved in what amounted to legal extortion of their own people, they were not just despised, they were cut off from all the regular Jewish rites and rituals. Considered traitors, they had no hope of salvation under the Jewish religious system. And so we pick it up in verse 13. Then he, Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Jesus has been described over and over again in just a few verses by Mark as having teaching as his number one priority. Though he went around healing the sick and casting out demons in a miraculous way, he prioritized teaching. And this certainly carried over to his first disciples in the book of Acts who went about preaching and teaching. It ought therefore to be our priority today. And so no matter what else we're doing, we want to be known for and noted for the priority that Jesus had in uh, and among people, and that is presenting the word of God. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, we know Levi as Matthew, and after this initial story, that is how Mark will always refer to him as well. Matthew is the Greek name. Levi was the Hebrew name. As a tax collector, Matthew worked for Greek-speaking Romans, but he gathered taxes from his own Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so he would go by both of these names. Sitting at the tax office meant that he was at what we would call a customs booth or a toll booth along the road, charging tax on goods both coming into and going out from Capernaum. And so the tax booth was set up on the main thoroughfare, and when you brought stuff in or took stuff out for uh, commerce, then it was taxed. He was undoubtedly familiar with Jesus, if for no other reason, on account of the mighty works the Lord had been performing. Capernaum was the Lord's headquarters, as it were, 
and uh, he had been ministering for quite some time, healing and preaching and teaching and calling disciples. And so uh, it, it's not possible that Matthew had not heard of him. So he knew something about the Lord. And apparently there was something stirring in his heart because the Lord is going to call him and he's going to immediately follow Jesus. And this is a profound and moving and I think very emotional follow me command. Tax collectors were considered ritually unclean and outside of Judaism altogether. Yet Jesus called him to follow, requiring seemingly nothing of Matthew in terms of cleansing or preparation. Even lepers, he told, to go to the priest and present themselves to go through certain steps of the law so that they could be uh, acclimated back into Jewish society. But to Matthew, he just said, follow me. And this follow me is a come just as you are invitation. It's the only way really that you can come to the Lord. No amount of good works, no amount of religious rituals can affect the heart of the matter, which is that we are all sinners separated from God. It is only by believing in Jesus that we can be saved. God declares the believing sinner righteous based on the cross of Jesus Christ where he took our place. We can't emphasize this enough because the devil has been pretty successful over the centuries in spreading the lie that we can and should clean up our own lives before coming to God. You maybe have shared with a person, I know this has happened to me more than once, you've talked to them about coming to church or coming to the Lord, and they say, well, there's some things I need to get right before I can come to church. There's some things I need to do before I can come to the Lord. And then, of course, every world religion, minor or major, uh, specializes in some form of good works by which I can qualify for the afterlife, by which I please God. And so Jesus comes and he says, yeah, none of that works. There aren't any good works that work in terms of getting you into heaven. You're far more gone than that. You're far more sinful than that. You're born dead in trespasses and sins. And, and there's no way you can clean yourself up in order to come to me. I have to do the work. And so it's always a come-as-you-are invitation. While it is possible for a person to reform, we cannot be transformed unless we receive the Lord as our Savior. And so there's a lot of reform, there's a lot of reformation out in the world. And, and I think to a certain extent, it's good. I would rather have a person be a reformed drunk than a drunk. If for no other reason than when they get behind the wheel, I have more of a chance of getting home. But that reformed drunk is still a hell-doomed sinner who needs to have their heart transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus looks at Matthew, who's outside of Jewish society, who's an outcast, a despised traitor, and he says, Matthew, right now, get up, and you can follow me. Matthew had, in a moment of time, gone from being a guy who could not even attend synagogue to being one of the key disciples of the person John the Baptist had pointed out as the Messiah, who would inaugurate the kingdom of God on the earth. That is an illustration of grace. Sometimes it's better to illustrate grace than to try and uh, um, define it. And people say, well, what does grace mean? You need to look at the lives of people and see what grace means. Grace means that one minute I was a despised tax collector and the next I was going to sit in judgment over the nation of Israel because God transformed my heart. 
and people were scratching their head, as we'll see in a minute, wondering how is that possible? That's grace in action. And then in verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Now Matthew threw a feast, partly in order to introduce his colleagues to Jesus. It's typical of a person who is called by the Lord to want to tell his closest friends and his family about the Lord. It would be odd not to. Jesus isn't a secret friend. When, those of you who came to the Lord later in life, you were so excited about the forgiveness of sins and the new life that you had in Christ, you wanted to tell others, and you did tell others about what had happened to you. It says they followed him, and that probably means they too got saved. If so, I wonder how many of them had a Zacchaeus-like response to their new life. Zacchaeus was another tax collector we encounter in the Gospel of Luke. He was a short guy who had to climb the tree to see Jesus coming by. The Lord noted his effort and invited himself to dine at Zacchaeus' house. During that dinner, the tax collector got saved and said, and I quote, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore to them fourfold. And so that was the work of grace on the heart of Zacchaeus. I wonder if a similar work of grace was taking place among a, a gathering of tax collectors. I mean, imagine the kind of sin that was available there. Imagine the, the extortion and the embezzlement and the hiding of funds and all. And, and as one by one, they would start telling their stories about the transformation that had taken place. I think a lot of money was restored and moved around that night at that feast. Jesus' other disciples, namely the two sets of fishing brothers that we've already met, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they were at the feast in Matthew's house. Think of that. We can be certain these boys had never eaten with a tax collector. You didn't go down to the local fast food place and have to share a table with the tax collectors. Uh, you had meals at home uh, with people that you had things in common with, and tax collectors were all by themselves. In fact, Matthew undoubtedly collected and extorted taxes from their fishing business. And so they weren't the kind of people that would ever really get together. And yet here they were with Jesus at the center, all sharing a meal for at least that night, they were enjoying the freedom we have in Jesus Christ to share fellowship with all who are called by him to follow him. It's a beautiful thing. Not everyone was happy about the grace of God in Matthew's life. And so in verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this literally reads the scribes of the Pharisees. These were the scholars who spent their time studying the scriptures who were of the strict sect of the Pharisees. As I explained last week, there were also Sadducees, and they had their scribes. But these were the scribes, the students, the scholars who studied the, uh, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, for the Pharisees, which was perceived to be the more spiritual bunch and so these are the guys. These are the number one, numero uno spiritual team of the day. Uh, and in the original language, this isn't a question. They didn't come and say, hey, we've got a, 
a question to ask you while we're watching Jesus eat. This is a stunned exclamation. With tax collectors and sinners he eats? Somebody probably went and got them and said, hey, you can't believe what's happening at Matthew's house right now. And when they turned the corner, and these houses would have open courtyards, people were coming and going all the time, they all at once, or one of them, exclaimed, with tax collectors and sinners he eats? It was astonishing to them. They couldn't comprehend how it was possible to share a meal with such people, let alone to seem to be enjoying it. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. No word of knowledge was needed here. Jesus heard their exclamation and he graciously turned from his feasting to give them an answer. By the way, I was thinking about this. Why didn't these guys just quit asking Jesus questions? Every question anybody asked Jesus was met with an astonishing jaw-dropping answer that made you feel like an idiot. I always, my favorite debate moment years and years ago was the vice presidential debate between Dan Quayle and was it Len Benson? Was that his first name? He was the vice presidential candidate for uh, the Democrats. And Dan Quayle was talking about how much like, because he was young and people were giving him a hard time for being young, he was talking about how much like John Kennedy he was. And after he got done talking, Len Benson just looked at him and he said something to the effect of, I served with John Kennedy. I knew John Kennedy. Sir, you are no John Kennedy. And that was it. You might as well, Dan Quayle should have said, let's quit right now. I've lost this debate. There's no recovery from this. This is one of the greatest moments, comebacks in debate history. You might as well forget it. Now, they went on to win the election. Uh, tells you how much debates are important. But that, and so Jesus, every time, every question, they were just scratching their heads thinking, ah, why didn't I think of that? And so they ask him this question, and he answers profoundly. No one who is sick thinks, I better get myself well, then I'll make an appointment to go and see my doctor. It doesn't make sense. I remember my kidney stone. Some of you remember yours. I was out mowing my yard. I don't know how it was. Maybe it was a word of knowledge, but I was mowing my yard, and all of a sudden it was like, ooh, oh, that's a kidney stone. And I called, Pam was out at KCS with the kids, and I called her with my last breath. And I said, you got to get home right now. I have to go to the hospital right now before I die. And uh, anyway, I didn't call and say, hey, honey, I'm passing a kidney stone get here so I can get this thing done in two or three weeks and then we'll call the doctor and I'll let him know how successful I was. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus says, hey, when you're sick, you need a physician. And then, because of the nature of the problem, Dr. Jesus doesn't wait for the sinner to realize he or she needs help. He goes out and finds them calling on them to repent. And so they, you, you know, the sick need a physician. And Jesus says, the sin sick need me and I have to go find them. They don't even know how sick they are. But when I find them, I make them whole. The scribes of the Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners, but as righteous because they were attempting to keep God's law as they interpreted it. 
They were, for example, keeping themselves separate from people considered to be sinners. And they thought that was a plus. But we don't hang around with sinners. That makes us more righteous. How sad that those who think they had the cure kept it to themselves. Think about that. These guys thought, hey, we're, we know what's up. We're, we're the righteous. We know how to please God. We know what it takes to go to heaven. So we're going to stay away from sinners who have no hope of heaven and keep all this to ourselves. What kind of a physician is that? It's somebody you don't want in your HMO. I mean, it's, it's not good. You cannot achieve righteousness by keeping the law. You can only receive righteousness as a gift from Jesus Christ. Now, at the very least, the scribes ought to have been embarrassed because they never once thought about how to help tax collectors and sinners know the God of Israel. They were content to judge them, to turn them over to judgment. So Jesus, they're getting on Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he, in a sense, says, this is what you should be doing. You who are the righteous, you should be sharing righteousness, if you think that's what it is, with sinners so that they can be like you. But instead, Jesus would go on in the other Gospels to say they heap burdens upon people that, and then don't even help them to bear them, uh, and it's, a, it's terrible. I mean, how could you not want to rejoice that one minute Levi was a tax collector, and from this point forward in Mark's Gospel, he would be known as Matthew, a companion of the Messiah? Could the teaching of the scribes affect a heart in so radical a manner? Did they ever have a disciple like this? who completely transformed 180 degrees? No. I think it goes without arguing that Jesus and his disciples and Matthew and the tax-collecting sinners were all enjoying that feast, celebrating. Come just as you are salvation by grace through faith in Jesus is something to celebrate. Olive Garden has that never-ending pasta bowl. I can get into that. Red Lobster, endless shrimp. Eh, not so much. Christians have eternal life, and that should be celebrated like a feast at all times. Words like joy and joyful occur hundreds of times in the Bible. We are commanded to rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. To exemplify means to illustrate or to show as an example. Our lives should illustrate or show as an example to the world that salvation in Jesus Christ is a spiritual feast, a smorgasbord of resources needed to live for God and to serve the Lord. If you are saved, you should see yourself as a Matthew called by Jesus, wanting to call others to him to a feast that will last forever. Another way of putting this is to say grumpy Christians ought to be the exception rather than the rule. And yet so often people associate Christianity with funerals. It's almost like, you know, when you start talking about the Lord, Jesus loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm not enjoying my plan at all right now, but... <laughs> Joy comes in the morning. I mean, no, seriously, all you have to do, and I don't, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or, or go too far with this, but even most Christian funerals are not joyous. There's moments of joy, but we're, we're a little bit reserved. Can I tell a joke? 
Can I, can I be loud? You know, can we do something other than organ music? We're here to celebrate. Brother Joe is absent from his body and present with the Lord. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, get some party poppers. I mean, go for it. Uh, sure, there's a sorrow. There's a, in, in Thessalonians, Paul said we, we have a sorrow, but not those who, according to having no hope. Uh, and, and so we need to break out of this. The Christian life is to be presented as a feast, not uh, some kind of a famine. And, and we sometimes forget this. We need to be serious Christians, serious about the gospel, but in a way that portrays its joy. Verse 18 through 22, Jesus explains why fasting is something you should enjoy. When Jesus was on the earth, the Jews who considered themselves righteous fasted twice a week on the second and the fifth day of the week. It wasn't commanded by God. You won't find it anywhere in the scriptures. It was something they added that was assumed to make you more spiritual. I mean, doesn't fasting automatically sound more spiritual than feasting? If I come up to you at some point and say, hey, I'm fasting, whoa, wow, maybe I should fast. Instead, I'm posting pictures of a rose cone pollo on Instagram. Saying, yeah, I just wish you were here, you know, and stuff. And, and so people just assume it's, you know, more spiritual to fast. But this is the background for the particular question about fasting They're talking about the ritual fasting of twice a week by the religious Pharisees and turns out the disciples of John the Baptist. And they're wondering why Jesus' disciples don't follow that tradition. And so verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. They came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And inherent in the question is, we're more spiritual than you. Now, we learned earlier in chapter one that John the Baptist had been imprisoned. His disciples are an interesting bunch because they don't really do what he told them to do. I kind of got sidetracked this week thinking about the disciples of John. For example, John had pointed out Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said of himself, I must decrease while Jesus increases. In effect, he told his disciples to follow Jesus but they remained followers of John. Going into the book of Acts, quite a ways after Jesus was taken to heaven and the church was born, Paul encounters disciples of John the Baptist. He can tell that there's, some, he can tell that there's something not quite right about them. He asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they say to him, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's weird because John the Baptist spoke of the Messiah baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And so here they are, not following Jesus, still following John the Baptist, way into the church age. We don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Finding common ground with the Pharisees, that's another odd thing about John's guys. In Matthew's gospel, John had called the Pharisees who came out to him in the wilderness a brood of vipers. In case you're not sure, that's politically incorrect. So you, you like are not just a, a snake, you're giving birth to snakes. That's how bad you are. 
But here his disciples were teaming up with them to question the Lord. And so here's the guys that shouldn't still be following John the Baptist who are confused about the Holy Spirit, teaming up with the Pharisees to ask Jesus why his disciples aren't spiritual. Now back to our, uh, before we get back to our text, the point I wanted to make was this. It's all too possible for a disciple to not really hear what is being said. These guys did not really hear John the Baptist, even though they were following him. We should take note of this and ask the Lord to show us the things we are not really hearing and the reasons why. Not if there are things we're not hearing, but realizing that there certainly are. We, the way we approach things, there have to be biases and prejudices. It's just human nature. So Lord, I don't want to be a disciple of John the Baptist in that sense, where I'm misunderstanding things that you plainly said. Now back to our text. All the spiritual guys were fasting, and fasting certainly seems spiritual. So why was Jesus still holding that turkey leg, probably on a fast day? Well, verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. You don't fast at a wedding. It's inappropriate. It is, in fact, rude and disrespectful because you're excluding yourself from the joy of the occasion. We would call it a buzzkill. Imagine everybody's having fun at a wedding. The feast has begun. And you're the host, and you know, to your kids that got married, and you're going around, and there's one guy just sitting there looking at his food. Every now and then he takes his fork and he moves his peas around. It's probably a $25 plate in today's economy. Hey, what's up? I'm fasting. What do you mean you're fasting? I'm, I'm not really into this wedding. What a downer. Stay home. It's like that stupid custom at weddings of asking, does anyone here present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Oh man, are you asking for it? <clears throat> it's a terrifying moment when the bride and groom have lost control of the ceremony. I was at a wedding one time where my mom, bless her heart, raised her hand. I'll tell you more about that sometime. <laughs> Jesus goes so far as to say they cannot fast. He means that the joy they are experiencing is so overwhelming that fasting should never even enter their minds. If someone were to say, would you think we should fast? What, are you crazy? No. And by the way, John the Baptist is quoted in John's gospel as saying this, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You know what that means? It means John's disciples had already heard this answer. John had used this illustration before Jesus did. And so there was no reason for them to even ask this question. But the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Now, a key here is that the word used for taken away is a word that describes taken away in a form of violence. He wasn't therefore talking about his ascension into heaven, but he was specifically talking about being crucified and being in the grave three days and three nights. Jesus knew he was headed to the cross, and that is the taken away from them moment that he was here referring to. 
His specific answer as to why he and his disciples did not practice the twice weekly fasting was that it was inappropriate to do so while he was on the earth offering to inaugurate the kingdom of uh, God. He will now go on to make a distinction between the kind of fasting practiced by the disciples of John and the Pharisees and that which is appropriate for a disciple of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And so obviously you shouldn't attempt to patch an old worn garment by sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth over a hole in it. The result would be that the unshrunk patch, when it is washed, shrinks and it tears away from the old garment at the sewn edges, and it leaves a greater tear than before. Actually, to, preserve, to seek to preserve the old by patching it up with what is new is destructive. It, it destroys, it doesn't repair. In verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. The skins of goats, stripped off as nearly whole as possible and partly tanned, were commonly used as the containers for liquids. With age, these skins would become hard and they would lose their elasticity. If you put new wine that was fresh from the vat into them, Inevitably, the fermenting wine would burst the old, brittle wineskin. A double loss would result. The wine would be lost and the skins would be ruined. The traditions of the day, like twice weekly fasting, were like a torn garment and an old wineskin. And so the disciples of John and the Pharisees were trying to fit everything in together and, and, and just... They were looking at Jesus and thinking, well, maybe we can borrow a little bit from his teaching and, and all of that. And Jesus said, yeah, it's not like that. He says, I'm offering a brand new garment, not a repair or an alteration. And I'm promising a filling that your old wineskin can't handle. A relationship with Jesus would involve receiving a brand new garment, a robe of righteousness fit for heaven. And it would involve being filled with God, the Holy Spirit. Now, we often speak of our salvation using the illustration of the robe of righteousness, so I just want to summarize it this morning. Born a sinner, if you were to see yourself illustrated as standing before God, you would be standing before a thrice holy God in the most filthy garments imaginable. Imagine you're on your way to see God and you stumble and fall into an open cesspool. And then you get up and you continue on your way and you go and you stand before God and say, here I am, take me. Well, you're not getting in. And so Jesus says, here's the deal. I'll go to the cross and I'll take your filthiness upon me and I'll give you my robe of righteousness so that when God sees you, he sees me and he sees you robed in righteousness. And so I'm not here to repair an old Garment. There's no rep reparation possible. We can't sow righteousness, Christ's righteousness, onto self righteousness. Otherwise, it tears up. You need to receive by grace through faith my righteousness. And when you do, I'm going to send God the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to indwell you, and He cannot be contained in a, a system of religious rites and rituals. It's an entirely different way of living. 
The whole character of having a relationship with God thus changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. We can't add him to the old ways. He fulfills them and renders them obsolete. So does that mean we, not, uh, we never fast? Well, pardon the pun, but I would say not so fast. Get it? Not so fast. <laughs> Clever boy. This isn't the only thing Jesus said about fasting. A quick look at fasting is in order. In Matthew 6, 16, Jesus assumes that his followers will fast periodically because when he's talking about prayer and giving and fasting, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. So he assumed that his followers would do it. The Apostle Paul took this to heart in Acts chapter 13. The leaders of the church there at Antioch fast and pray before sending Paul and Barnabas out on their mission work. And then in chapter 14, we read that Paul and Barnabas fast and pray before appointing leaders in all of the churches that they establish. Jesus also mentioned how to fast. In that same passage in Matthew 6, he says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. You, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I've seen sessions where actors are given an emotion and then they have to convey it through their facial expressions alone. I, I can't act at all, but, but some people, man, they're just powerful actors and, and they say, you know, hope, and they do hope. And you think, wow, that, I can see hope in that expression. Now, I can understand a sad countenance. Anybody can do that. But how do you, how do you uh, illustrate fasting? It says here that they, they go around with a countenance that shows people they're fasting. I tried to do this all week, looking in the mirror. All I ended up with was chewing motions like... And I thought, you know, maybe people think I'm fasting because I'm, I'm looking at food. And then I thought, that's more zombie-like than anything else, you know. It doesn't say they look like zombies. And so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you can try. Come back next week. We'll have a contest to see who is giving off the better fasting face. Uh, but Jesus said, no, we don't do that. Um, we should have joy when we're fasting. So it seems then that we should fast and that when we do it, we should do it as unto the Lord in secret. But we're not done surveying fasting, not yet. I wanna share one more insight, one that I think puts at least some of our fasting into a new church age perspective that maybe you haven't thought about before. Do you realize that right now in heaven, Jesus is fasting? He said at the last supper with his disciples, assuredly, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus was referring to his second coming with his bride from heaven to the earth at the end of the tribulation to inaugurate the millennial kingdom at which time there will be a marriage supper on the earth. And he said, I am not going to drink again wine, the fruit of the vine, until you and I drink it together at our marriage supper. And so Jesus is doing a voluntary fast. Jesus has elevated fasting to something we'd have to call romantic. He says, look, I love you, you love me, 
And this is something that we should share together. And so I'm not gonna do it until we do it together. And maybe you have something like that in, in your relationship with your spouse or, or just something that you think, yeah, I might wanna do that, but I would never want to do it without my beloved. It just, it wouldn't have any meaning. It wouldn't have any purpose. It would be, it would seem weird for me to do it. Even though your wife is saying, oh, go ahead, honey, do it. Yeah, don't do it. There's a romantic sense of, honey, if you can't do it, I won't do it. I love you that much. And so Jesus is, is doing that. He's elevated fasting to romance, and, and he, it keeps us on his heart 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let me put it another way. We normally only think of fasting as a discipline that draws us closer to God, that humbles us, and that storms the gate of heavens, or gates of heaven so that we can get God to do what we want him to do. Now, Jesus is fasting. Do you think any of those categories apply to him? Is Jesus fasting from wine so that he'll draw closer to his father? So that he will humble himself to storm heaven to get God to do what he wants him to do? No, this is a completely different kind of fasting that we normally don't think about. He is fasting strictly for the joy of it, the anticipated joy of drinking again with us. I think that's pretty special. Here's what I get from this quick survey then. Fasting is okay as a practice because the bridegroom is gone, but since he is coming back, we ought to enjoy any fasting we do as an anticipation of our reunion with him and with all the saints of the church age. By the way, I came across this summary of fasting. Don't eat and allow God to speak to you in the space that you create. And so the idea is that I'm not going to have lunch. I'm going to spend that time with the Lord. I'm not going to have dinner. I'm going to spend that time with the Lord. So it isn't just skipping a meal so much as it is uh, uh, spending time with the Lord. That's the goal. So if you fast for whatever reason, it's still okay to fast to because hum- we do need to humble ourselves and we do need to seek the Lord and, and do these things. But there is a whole nother aspect of fasting that I think we've missed. Your Christian life is to look like a feast even if you fast in private. Jesus is, after all, your heavenly bridegroom and you are his bride and he's coming for you. Whatever other reasons you fast and whatever other results it can achieve, it keeps his coming for us to take us home on our hearts as we too long to drink only with him at our marriage supper. Let's pray.